This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. No joke, I think I've recorded this interview like five times. I don't know why I'm having trouble. I've been doing this for a long time. Anyway, um, today's episode is an interview I did with Stephanie Robel about her new book, This Might Hurt, which is about um, two sisters, Natalie and Kit. Kit, uh, a few months ago, went off and joined a self-help commune kind of thing, but her older sister, Natalie, is a little suspicious of it. And, um... And then Natalie gets a message from someone seemingly at this weird little commune thing. And um, she basically, like, infiltrates it and, you know, shenanigans. It was really good. If you read Darling Rose Gold, I think you'll enjoy this one. Um, it has a the opening, though. Whew, that opening. Stephanie and I talk about that opening um, paragraph, chapter, scene. Um, a co-worker also, <laughs> when I said I was reading an, an advanced copy, my coworker Megan, hi Megan, also mentioned that she'd read it. <laughs> we commented on that opening scene. So just as a warning, she like drops you right in um, and and sets the tone. It's a good like, it's a good like litmus test, I think, for people who will continue to read. I promise, keep going. It's good stuff. Um, what's interesting is that Stephanie has been on the podcast before. Adam had interviewed her about Darling Rose Gold two years ago. Um, and when I say two years ago, I went looking for the episode, <laughs> you guys, it was, it was March 16th, 2020. It was the day that our interview with Stephanie Robel, um, went live, which means it was the Monday after we all were sent home from, um, the office here, like the Monday after we, this whole thing. <laughs> and you can tell that Adam and I have no idea what we're doing and we don't like what is this interesting because if you listen to it you know Adam says something about um we have this interview I apparently had some idea for the Thursday episode I don't remember what that was maybe I'll take some time and go look for it but we didn't know if we were going to be able to keep the podcast going after that we we did not know we did not know what was going to happen because we had never done these sort of like we had never utilized a online recording platform type thing for the podcast. You know, we did everything in house in the office. We had a small recording studio. We could get our coworkers in. We we had no idea. And here we are, 2 years later. That's fine. I mean, it's we figured it out. Right? Podcast is still going strong two years later. After all of that, we got new co-hosts. It's a new chapter. It's just everything's great. So, but if you if you want, it was just like listening to that old episode from March 16th, 2020 of that intro <clears throat> of our, our first interview with Stephanie Robel. You can like hear in our voices that we have no, like, it's just, it's very, it's, it's just one of those like, it's like a time capsule. It's like a time capsule in podcast form. 
Anyway, um, if you want to get a hold of the podcast, you can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. And you can always email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. So I think that's all we got. Um, yeah. So <laughs> um, I hope you enjoy this interview I did with Stephanie Robel on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. It's great to be here. Can you give listeners a brief introduction to This Might Hurt? Sure. So it's a story of three women, but I'll talk a bit about two of them. Um, they're sisters named Natalie and Kit Collins. And when the book starts, they haven't spoken to each other in six months. Kit's gone off to this private island um, to do this self-empowerment group called Wisewood. Um, and Natalie hasn't heard from her sister for six months while she's been away. And then all of a sudden, one day she gets an email from this Wisewood account that says, you know, we know your secret, like, should we tell Kit or are you going to come do it? And so that kind of sets the wheels in motion. And Natalie heads to Wisewood to Maine to sort of figure out what exactly is going on there. Yeah. And they're not really happy when she shows up. (laughs) (laughs) No, they are not. (laughs) They're on an island for a reason. (laughs) Right. I'm I'm curious if, uh, you know, like, what was the inspiration for Wisewood? Is there something that or I guess the book in general, like, you know, this idea of a sister going off to this self um, kind of actualization type retreat. Where did that all come from? So some people will call Wisewood a self-help group. Other people will call it a cult. (laughs) I think Um, I have cult in my notes. Yes. But I was trying to like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So um, what really interested me in writing this is I wanted to know two, like the answer to two questions, which is what kind of people join cults and what kind of people start them. And so it really started from a place of research, very similar to Rose Gold, where I was like, what's the deal with Munchausen by proxy? Like people who have it, what is going on in their heads? I wanted um, to do the same thing here. Um, So it started out with research and researching a bunch of cults. So no, Wisewood's not based on any one cult. But, you know, I when you stack up a bunch of cult leaders side by side, you start to notice some commonalities and personality traits like narcissism, charisma, um, like the ability to lie very well. Um, so, so yeah, as always, it starts with the research, but then I kind of flush them into my own characters as I, once I've learned what I need to. Um, Dolly and Rose Gold dealt with the relationship between a mother and daughter, and this might hurt deals with the relationship between two sisters. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, why you choose to sort of explore these relationships between women. I feel like it's, there's probably Mm -hmm. a purpose behind it. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's the, the having the relationships all be between women and having my narrators be women is very purposeful. And that, I don't know, I just like the idea of being in a world where like <laughs> men aren't like the, aren't the driving force, you know, it's, there's always like a boyfriend or a husband or a father who's, you know, a very important force in the book. And that's true. And this might hurt. There's certainly a father who has a lot of influence on one of the characters Um, But I really like the idea of like women doing things to each other sort of thing, good and bad, helping each other, hurting each other. And so so that has definitely been purposeful. I think I haven't really set out to do like relationship, like familial relationships. That's been more of a product of just like, okay, if you want to write Munchausen by proxy, it's typically a a parent and a child. And then I just thought, you know, in the case of a cult and trying to remove someone from it, who's somebody that's going to 
you know, a parent would go to the ends of the earth, like drop everything they're doing in theory. But like I want, so I didn't want someone that invested, but I also wanted someone more invested than like a friend who's going to like try, but like they're not going to upend their whole life. And so I just thought like a sibling is someone who's like feels more than your average sense of duty without being like, I'm going to just like topple your whole life or, you know, I feel a right to like change your life for you sort of thing. Like maybe a parent would. That makes sense. That makes sense. Although um, Natalie does veer into that territory at times. She does, for sure. but yeah. <laughs> you know, she's just looking out for her sister. Um, you know, you mentioned in your introduction that there are sort of three women. We learn <laughs> that Wisewood is led by a woman. That sort of fits <laughs> into what you were saying just a minute ago about women um, hurting other women. And I'm curious in your research, like how often are cults led by women? Because I feel like <laughs> that's not something that usually happens. Yeah, no, you're right. I actually, of the cults that I researched deeply, there was only one example and it was co-led by a man and a woman. So it was Heaven's Gate. She was very much like, he is the one that's more remembered. But if you really dig deep into the origin of that cult, she was really like the mastermind behind it. Um, And then he kind of carried up the mantle because she died before he did just, you know, of, um, for, you know, health reasons. Um, so that was the one example. And yeah, everything else, it's typically men. And yeah. well, we know the whole history, like there's a long history of men, you know, abusing power and being abusive and whatever. And that was, that was one of the reasons I was drawn to Munchausen by proxy is because it's typically women. It's one of the few abusive illnesses that is dominantly women. And I was curious about why that was, why isn't it men? You know, why, what yeah. is it about this caregiving role? And so, yeah, I just kind of, I wanted to bring that over into this might hurt as well. And just think like, well, what would a cult that's led by a woman look like versus one that was led by a man? I I didn't want it to be like a sex thing. I didn't want it to be like religion. And so I just, I was trying to think of like, what sort of, what would their guiding principles be? I wanted to go in a territory that's not as well trodden cult-wise. Right. Yeah. And this idea of fear, or shall I say fearlessness and mm. gaining fearlessness is a major role in the book and kind of what Wisewood is is all about. It seems like just getting rid of those fears that kind of hold you back a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think hopefully if I've done my job, the idea is when you first start reading Kit's chapters, it the whole thing seems like pretty innocuous, you know, like a lot of the stuff I found myself being like, yeah, I could agree with this. Like in theory, being fearless or minimizing pain or not being held back, those all seem like reasonable things. And the reason behind those decisions narratively was like, if you start looking at people who have joined cults, like it's not like they sign up and they're like, oh, someday I'm going to be made to commit suicide. You know what I mean? They they join um, a political movement or like a social group or just trying to make friends or a religion or whatever it is. And so these things do seem like pretty innocent and well-meaning and often are well-meaning in the beginning. And so I really wanted to try to make that come through. Because I think so much artistically that's been portrayed about cults has been just like straight to like, you know, bizarro land where it's just like everyone's wearing orange robes and like, doing, you know what I mean? And that's not really doing justice to the people who have joined them because it makes them seem naive and or foolish and they're not. Um, no, I, I fully agree. I've I read a book last year, um, cultish by Amanda Montel, Mm. which sort of talks about cults through like a linguistic perspective. And part of it is that, you know, 
the cult leaders, they use specific language to kind of draw people in where um, it, yeah, it doesn't seem, they don't sell it as a cult. They sell it as this is a solution to a problem that you have and we are the people who can help you. And then once the person is kind of in, they don't necessarily realize what is happening around them because they're just sort of surrounded by, by this community really. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I, I, I was looking from member to member from different cults, like I wanted to have this like list of like shared traits or backgrounds or whatever. And the only thing I could find that like every single person had across cults was just this, they were searching for something deeper. They wanted a purpose or more meaning. And it was like, who can't relate to that? You know, like we all want that. It's just like they chose a group that went in a very wrong direction, um, you know, versus some of the other groups the rest of us have joined. And so it, it was really interesting to think like, oh, this isn't, you know, it's not like, oh, I had this childhood or, oh, I have like this personality characteristic that makes me more, more susceptible. It's just that I was looking for something more and like really wanted to believe in something and it didn't work out. Yeah. It was interesting when I was reading the book, I kept, you know, like when Natalie gets there and so we're sort of seeing it through Natalie's eyes and they have these like cabins, she goes to the, to eat lunch. I'm like, this feels like summer camp. And so I could bear, (laughs) (laughs) so I mean, but I can see how, you know, Wisewood and and other cults sort of set it up where, you know, I feel like, um, at the beginning, I mean, like Rebecca as the teacher has, I, I understand what she's trying to do. I think it just mm. sort of went in a, she took it a little, little bit differently yeah. <laughs> in cult land yeah. versus self-help. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely cult leaders who from the beginning, like Charles Manson, you're like, I don't know if you ever really had good intentions with this, but even if you were to look at like Jim Jones with the people's temple, like yeah. and it, the a lot of good that he did in Indiana in terms of desegregating schools and all of that and raising money for the poor and stuff. And yeah, it is. I just think it's fascinating. Like the turns that it's like, Oh, you were on this right path. And like yeah. what happened, you know, in his case, like a lot of drugs and probably some undiagnosed yeah. <laughs> mental health issues, but um yeah, I just find that fascinating. Those people who just like, instead of being like the rest of us, they just like veer off and like now their lives have taken a total left turn. Exactly. Um, so when we start reading the book and this is sort of like the first half of it, we have Natalie in the present. She gets this email. She goes off to Wisewood um, and is in search, is searching for her sister. They don't really want her there. Um, she runs into some obstacles, but those scenes are intercut with an unnamed girl in the past who is pursuing an interest in magic mm-hmm. while living with um, an abusive and very unsupportive father or yeah, unsupportive father. And, you know, I, I loved these scenes um, because I'm guess like, I'm trying to work it out in my mind. Like who is this for the entire, <laughs> the entire first half of the book? We're not going to spoil anything, obviously. <laughs> um, but this idea of this girl pursuing being a magician which again is sort of like you don't find a lot of women in that profession Mm. um and I'm curious if you can sort of talk a little bit about it's explained later it becomes a little bit more clear but like where this decision to like make magic be the um sort of focus of her attentions like where that came from 
Yeah, it was not really, it was like, as I was developing her character, so she came to me as an adult first, right? And then I was almost like working her timeline backward, like, okay, well, what led her from where she is now to the step, like, what was she doing right before that? And what about right before that? And right before that? And right, and so like, it eventually led me to this path of magic. And I think, I mean, given the childhood that she has, which is pretty horrible, you know, her father is very emotionally abusive. Um, But he also instills a lot of beliefs in her, as all parents do, and a lot of guiding philosophies that she never loses, even in adulthood. Um, And I just thought, I mean, I could have written an entire book just on like her life, I think, (laughs) you know, like it's, it's interesting that her childhood does seem to be resonating a lot with early readers. And it's not, you know, it, it's not specifically drawn into the current day, like situation Natalie is dealing with, but it is, right. it goes in tandem with the themes of faint, of pain, fear and pain, I think. Right. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say, because your book opens, <laughs> we just get this, <laughs> we just get this scene of someone like splitting their tongue. And I'm like, what am I reading? Yeah. yeah. It's definitely like an intention. It's like almost a gate of like, but the thing is, it's like, I think, and tell me if you agree that it's like by far the most gruesome scene in the book. I don't think that any of this stuff that follows is like it, that scene is almost horror territory, but it's only a page. And it really does like, you kind of sit up and go like, oh, okay. All right. We're like, now we're in it. Um, but <laughs> it, it definitely, you know, it ties into what's to come. Certainly. It, it does. And it, it definitely, yes, it was. I don't know what I was expecting. Like I, <laughs> like <laughs> I had read Darling Rose Gold. I loved it. You know, I knew what this was about. I'm like sisters cults. I'm in. And then um, I'm like, okay, we're okay. Yes, it is very much an attention grabber. And mm. it, and I think because you know we don't know who it is, and we don't know who it is for a while. Like the entire half, the first half of the book, I'm like, is it Natalie? Is it Kit? Like what? What? And um, that kept making me want to read to sort of Mm. put those pieces together Mm. and I will say that like again not spoiling anything from a craft perspective I was blown away by the way you handled the magician and the reveal because once that reveal comes like oh like it it kind of makes you rethink a lot of things and Mm. um like what you had read previously in the book um you know you talked about how you, she came to you as an adult and you kind of work backwards, but I'm, I'm wondering, you know, did you have a plan or an outline you were working from just in general, once you had that to sort of structure the book? Um, yes, but the, to be honest, this is where like a great editor comes in. Cause it was my edit. <laughs> it was my editor's idea to take, um, her name off of those chapters in part one. So I wasn't really intending to kind of keep that as a mystery from the reader. It was more, um, my question was more like, what should the headings of these chapters be? Should there be dates? Because there's actually three different timelines in the book. You know, there's like the Mm -hmm. the modern day Natalie, then six months earlier when Kit gets there. And then also this like random like child who's like, we don't know what period in time. And, And I had to take out any identifying things that would tell you what period in time it would be. Um, so I think, um, I think it was the right call. I know some readers will probably be like, this is too confusing. Like, I don't know what's going on. And like, I respect that. But 
the real once once my editor had suggested it and I got on board with it, the question was like when to kind of like let that reveal drop. And I think it actually just from kind of pulling close, you know, family or friends or whatever, it seems to come at different times for people, to be honest. Some people some people figure it out before the end of part one, um, just because they can see where some of the like philosophy things are going. Yes. And then other people, it's more like until the name is like literally used to this person, then it's like, oh, oh God, that's who it is. So I think, <laughs> I, I think, was that you? <laughs> I think I, I think I, I think I figured out like a page before, like there was something, okay. I don't, I don't have my advanced copy in front of me. Um, there was something, yeah, I, I was definitely late to that. And I was just like, wait a minute. <laughs> Yeah. So I was, that's interesting. But again, like, that's what I'm saying though. Like there were definitely going back, I could see how very perceptive readers of which Mm -hmm. I was not one (laughs) could, (laughs) could figure it out um, early. You know, that's where like the best laid plans as a writer, it's just like, that's, what's so interesting. You kind of put this thing forward and you don't really know, you can say like, well, here's this and here's that. And this is exactly when this will happen. But like, then you actually have it go out into the world. And it's kind of wonderful how things happen at different, like people have different reactions, of course, to characters, they perceive things at different times. And that's one of my favorite parts, like is just kind of sitting back and watching like the different reactions and what a range there is. That's so interesting. Well, I would say, I think your editor made the right choice keeping the name (laughs) off because I think that definitely added an element of, you know, keeping me engaged to try and figure it out, which I did Mm. not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well that's good you don't, want it to, you don't want it to be too easy like when you know when it's like it's true oh, the, the big mystery and then like three pages later you're like I know what the answer is <laughs> I think I thought I knew what the answer was like right up until the end and then the, yeah something clicked and I was like oh no I'm definitely wrong um <laughs> I think that's actually what happened um so along with the opening which is this you know splitting of the tongue there are a lot of um very dangerous and and quite literally death-defying acts, which are, it, I, I watch a lot of Penn and Teller um, fool me, and they always talk about how when it comes to these like dangerous acts, they only allow ones on their show that aren't actually dangerous. They just look dangerous, but um, mm. the magicians are are actually dangerous. And I'm wondering if you did any research with magicians and illusionists to kind of get the accuracy of these scenes right and, and sort of understand the mechanics of, of those tricks. Yeah, I mean, less about the mechanics, but definitely a lot of research into existing illusionists like David Blaine, of course, is a big one. And then in the UK, Darren Brown is it's less about the danger, but more um, just he's not doing typical magic tricks. It's more like kind of changing people's perceptions or like, you know what I mean, where you're like, was this magic or are you just like really good at convincing people of something? You know what I mean? Which I do ties into the character quite well, I think. Um, but yeah, David Blaine is certainly like the the best example of, I don't know, I think he does those things for real, but like, I guess it's possible that he doesn't. And I, that's why I didn't really get into the, the super mechanics of it with this character either is like, if you peel back, like pull back the curtain, then it's like, oh, okay, well, this is what you did. And like, now it loses some of it's like, ooh, this is crazy. <laughs> That's, that's fair that is fair I mean I do think that is sort of the appeal of magicians and illusionists in general is you know watching it and 
whether you are someone who, I think there are two different types. There are people who watch it and want to believe that what they did, they actually did. And then there are people like me who are like, yes, but how did they do it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, but so, but I like in my mind, I'm like, oh, I can totally see these, how these acts go. And um, just like watching the progression from card tricks up to these, you know, like knives are involved and all yeah. sorts of things was was fun to to read about. Well, I read a um Darren Brown's memoir and he had a quote in there that I'm paraphrasing but was like the more attentive a spectator is, the easier they are to fool. So it's like the closer you're watching and like trying to figure it out, the more likely you are to miss it, which I thought yeah. was such an interesting it w- parallel to like cults themselves. You know, it's like if you you can't hypnotize someone unless they like want to be hypnotized or kind of believe in it to some extent. Like it's not, you can't just like hypnotize someone who doesn't want to, or like doesn't believe that it's real. And I think that applies to cults as well. It's like people who are looking already looking for something and wanting something from it. It's easy for those of us outside who aren't looking for anything to look at, you know, whichever cult and be like, how could you possibly fall for that sort of thing? But I think that's where like there there is a sort of not to like glorify cults at all, but like there is like a kind of magic involved. There's a salesmanship that like the leaders are very good at. And so I thought that that was kind of an interesting parallel. It seems like there's a lot uh, cults. I think cults are there's always been a fascination among non-cult people to read about them. But I feel like there's been an uptick over the last couple of years of books about cults. Um, I'm just wondering if you've noticed that as well, like as you were writing this, if you were coming across other books that dealt with cults. I've definitely read my fair share of novels that cover cults. A lot of times, I mean, of course, there's excellent ones, but a lot of times, like I mentioned earlier, I find they're more of a plot device than a real like psychological examination of one, which is kind of more what I was interested in. I I mean, it, you know, my book does have the crazy rituals and stuff like that eventually, but, um, I didn't want it to just be like, oh yeah, like look at these clowns sort of thing. Like I wanted to treat the group of people with respect and sort of make them feel like these are people that, you know, these are people that you work, work with or go to school with or in your family or whatever, because nobody thinks that anyone they know would ever be part of one. But like, clearly a lot of people do because there's plenty of cults in the world, yeah. unfortunately. Um, so yeah, there's, it was kind of, I like to, before I start writing, look at what else has been done in this space, because, you know, I don't want to just write the same thing, whether, you know, on purpose or by accident. Um, and then kind of think like, well, what could I bring to this that I think has like sort of been missing from this topic? And that was, that was where I landed. One thing to take away from just sort of cults in general is that I think it's easy to assume that none of us would be susceptible to that but books like this show that we're we could just be like anybody else if the right you know cult leader came along and sold us the right story yeah exactly I mean we've all been sold something to a lesser degree that wasn't maybe like we picked up our lives and like moved somewhere else for it but I think there is a perception of like People that join them are unintelligent, um, which is not true at all. Like the more research you do, like 
people from all walks of life, like doctors, lawyers, whatever have joined. So it's not, it's not like a naivete thing. You know, it's, it's just, like I said, people searching for meaning, they want to be part of a community and they go in thinking that, oh, here's one that I found. And it's positive, largely positive at first. If it wasn't, they wouldn't stick around. And then eventually, you know, you're in so deep, whether financially, a lot of times these cults give people jobs. Um, it's your only like source of friendship or whatever, whatever the case is, whatever way they've pulled you in. And then it's suddenly not so easy to pull yourself out of it. hundred percent. Well, Stephanie, I've had so much fun talking to you. I just have one question left, which Mm -hmm. is what do you hope readers take away from this might hurt? Um, I think, I don't know that I necessarily have a, a a big message, but I, I am really, I think the most interesting thing I learned in my research, um, was this relationship between pain and fear, which was kind of unexpected and not a direction I really expected the novel to go in. But when I learned that, um, dread or fear of impending pain, like actually makes pain worse. I was like, Oh, that is, I mean, it makes sense intuitively, but I think I just had never thought about it before. So I think thinking more about fear in general would be like a lovely, I just think it's a really interesting conversation. It can be very dark, of course, too, but I think there's so much that's useful. (laughs) Now I'm starting to sound like, like a member of Wisewood here, but I really do think that it's, it's worth a deeper examination you know, of fear. If, if it gets a conversation started between, you know, friends or book club members or whatever, then I'll be thrilled. <laughs> uh, see your own cult got you. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is my brainchild. So I don't know, I guess it's, if I would fall for any, I guess they would be into that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It was fun. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard note.